Hello and welcome to episode number 124 of the Random Thoughts Podcast. That's R-A-N-D-U-M-B Thoughts.com online. I am your host, Darren O'Neill, and on today's show, we start on a very sad note. The great talk radio host, Rush Limbaugh, has passed away at the age of 70 from lung cancer. We've known it's been coming for about a year. But Rush Limbaugh is a guy that created a format. There's a lot of people that can do their jobs. There's a lot of people that can do talk radio. But Rush created the format that a lot of podcasters, including myself on this show, are using today. It is a solo thing. It's a monologue, very rarely having guests in. It is sitting in front of a microphone and saying whatever comes to mind. It is not an easy thing to do, especially when you're doing it live, as Bill O'Reilly would say. And you have an audience the size that Rush has. There's already people, though, the usual ghouls dancing already that Rush Limbaugh has passed away. I mean, if you want to be able to point out people who are not good people, those who are celebrating anybody's death, you can usually put them in the list that they're not going to be the finest examples of humankind. I mean, people call Russia racist. I mean, they'll ignore the reality. They'll ignore the fact that his longtime producer, who went by the pseudonym Bo Snurdly, real name James Golden, has been working with Russia since 2001. As the producer for his show, the call screener, basically his right-hand man, often uh, would give Rush hell over the little talkback system that you couldn't hear. So he was a huge part of the Rush Limbaugh show. But people will blather on about things that they don't know. Rush started out as an employee of the Kansas City Royals, so we can tie MLB into both stories that I've got for today. In 1984, he began his talk radio career at KFBK in Sacramento, California, where he replaced in that time slot the also uh, legendary, in his own mind, Morton Downey Jr. Rush's program became syndicated on August 1st, 1988, so it lasted close to was in his 33rd year. And if you're a No Agenda listener, You know, that is the magic number for oh, so many reasons. But I know that I took a little bit of my overall delivery from the great El Rushbo. There's no question about it. The talent on loan from God, which we all have. Believe it or not, you all have your talents on loan from God because eventually your ticket gets punched as rushes just did and you move on from this life into the next. Also, you know, things like uh, Rush saying, you know, for him, it was in my formerly nicotine stained hands and he'd do one of those things where you could hear the paper. That's great radio. And you're going to be happy that there was a compressor I can add to that channel so it doesn't blow your eardrums out. But Rush once said that people come to talk radio for three reasons. To be entertained, to be entertained, and to be entertained. 
And podcasting, I don't believe, is any different than that. Sure, I mean, every now and then, maybe you'll learn something, and that's always a bonus. But you're here to be entertained, and we hope you are. But Rush Limbaugh, as anybody that does any kind of broadcasting, it is a humbling thing for me to know that people are listening to this in all corners of the world. And if you're listening to anyone's show long enough, you feel a personal connection. There's no doubt about it. My mom just called me about something completely unrelated. And when I let her know Rush had passed away, even though this we knew it was coming, there's no question about it over the last year, still, uh, you know, cried a little bit because this is a voice. This is a guy that's been part of our lives for decades. And whether you liked Rush Limbo or not, is he relevant? He definitely was a trailblazer that changed the landscape of all talk radio, of media. And a lot of people will make the case that he guided the GOP more than anybody that was actually in an elected position did. And I cannot argue with that. No question about it. Rush Limbaugh, a huge force in radio, a huge force in politics. And I'll say I've owned a few different microphones along the way. The first I got that I thought was, okay, this is the first real broadcast kind of microphone was the Heil PR40 because I saw Leo Laporte use it. I mean, yeah, Leo's also a guy on the radio, a little bit below Rush, but he's still on the radio. And I picked up that because it was fairly cheap and it was like, hey, this is kind of a cool microphone. Look, Leo's using it. And then I kind of moved up a little bit to the RE320 which is the electro voice microphone that the podfather Adam Curry uses. It's like, hey, he's even cooler than Leo. <laughs> There's no question about it. And then I went to the Shure SM7B because, you know, Joe Rogan uses that. And I saw Glenn Beck use that. It's also the reason I picked up a Lewitt microphone because Beck changes microphones a lot. But the granddaddy of all broadcast microphones is without a doubt the microphone we're using right now. For this podcast, which is the Electro Voice RE20. And I've just got a plain matte black one that they just came out with this year. Not the ultra cool gold dip RE20 that the great Rush Limbaugh has been using for years. And that was the reason I wanted the RE20 more than anything else was I want to be like El Rushbo. So uh, he's going to be missed. No question about it. And whether you liked Rush or not, there's nothing you can do about the fact that he has left an indelible mark on the American culture. I remember having a brief Twitter argument with actor Jeremy Piven, who was responding to somebody who was like, we got to get Rush Limbaugh off the air. He's dangerous. And I made a comment like, oh, so you're the one that can decide who's dangerous who should be on the air or not and he's like no but i bet you do and i'm like no but that's why i'm asking the question here and i'm like you're telling me that uh, rush limbaugh lies about everything can you give me an example and he went nuts like oh you want me to give you an example oh, if you don't, if you don't know that uh... and then he uh never replied after that never did he even give me one example 
of where Rush Limbaugh lied. And I'm telling you, if you want to win an argument, the way to do it would be to have evidence, not to spew crazy stuff with nothing to back it. And that's where Rush Limbaugh, I think, really infuriated so many people was that what he was saying was often impossible to refute. And they wanted to refute it, but they didn't know how. And whether you agreed with what he was saying or not, having that particular skill of being able to debate and just eviscerate your opponent, you have to respect that a little bit. At least I do. So rest in peace, El Rushbo. Your voice will be missed. And I don't think there's anybody at this point that is able to fill his shoes to do the job that he did or to uh, take over that golden RE20 microphone. I mean, eventually somebody will. I don't know who that's going to be. But the El Rushbo story was not the story we had planned for you today. The story we had planned for you today goes back into the history of baseball before the sport was integrated to learn about a guy who is referred to as the father of black baseball. His name is Andrew Foster, better known as Rube Foster, one of the greatest baseball minds ever, according to Bob Kendrick, who is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Hall of Fame, who also made the case for Rube Foster being one of the most influential people in the history of baseball, even though he's somebody that is not well known. So I thought it would be a good time, not just because it is Black History Month, which it is, but because the formation of the first of the real Negro Leagues was started by Rube Foster on February 13th, 101 years ago. But Andrew Rube Foster was born in Texas, and he is considered by a lot of people to be the best pitcher of the era of the first decade of the 1900s. He stood up between 6'2 and 6'4, depending on who you believe, weighed maybe up to about 250 pounds. So he was a big guy. He's credited with eight no hitters in the Negro Leagues, a variety of release angles, which totally flummoxed all of the batters, a bunch of different motions. He perfected the screwball, something we'll talk a little bit about, but he kept hitters off balance. He had power. He had the ability to use finesse. And throughout his career as a player, manager, owner, commissioner, he was able to get things done, which this is where you don't see too many people in baseball history that were able to wear all of those hats, to do all of those different jobs. I mean, there's a lot of players and there's a lot of players that became managers and maybe there's a few of those that became owner. I mean, Derek Jeter just became a part owner of a team. But there's not many that can say they were player, manager, owner, and the league founder. The guy was, without a doubt, one of the best baseball minds of any generation. He believed in aggressive play, which I always enjoyed. I mean, small ball. If you're here in Chicago and you live through the Ozzie Guillen era, I mean, sure, there were a lot of people hitting home runs, but the small ball was important. 
to show you how much that was important to Rube Foster. He would draw lines around the area around first base and third base. And if his players couldn't bunt into those circles, they were fined. If they were out on the base paths and they didn't slide, they were fined like five bucks, which back then was a lot of money. No question about it. So this was the mentality this guy had. He wanted to win. And there's nothing wrong with that. He wanted to compete. He wanted to show everybody that he was better than they were. In 1899, he was a 20-year-old phenom pitching for the Waco Yellow Jackets. Now, one article that I read on the great Rube Foster said he had a reputation as a gunman, literally. I mean, sure, he threw hard, but he also carried an ivory-handled pistol under his belt while on the mound. Which, I mean, that might keep people from uh, charging the mound if there was, say, a brushback pitch or something like that. Uh, I mean, they were more interesting days in baseball back then. A little bit more like the Wild West, or maybe a lot more like the Wild West. Rube Foster had a great fastball, a great curve, and he's considered pretty much the guy that perfected the screwball. At one point in his career with the Waco Yellow Jackets, was credited with pitching 11 shutouts in 11 days. And the article I saw that said, well, you know, a lot of people would consider this to be nothing but legend. As a lot of what happened in the Negro Leagues is just legend because there wasn't a lot of great record keeping, although there is some statistics coming out more and more as people discover long lost logbooks and things like that. But a lot of this is just the legend that grows from some of these players, because there were a lot of players in the Negro leagues that there are a lot of amazing stories. I think we mentioned here once on random thoughts, one of the stories about cool Papa bell who was credited as being so fast that he can flip the switch on his lights in his bedroom off and be under the covers before they actually turned off. Which, I mean, sure, again, that sounds like a legend and an exaggeration, but it was suggested that he might have lived in a house where there were some electrical problems, that it maybe it took a couple of seconds for the uh, switch to register, and then maybe, maybe he was actually that fast. 11 seconds around the bases, if I remember correctly, by Cool Papa Bell, something that uh, nobody today is doing. But when it comes to Rube Foster, that 11 shutouts in 11 days, you'd think it would be just a tall tale being told, but it was actually reported back then by the Southern white press. So uh, it seems like that may have been true, in which case we can also point to today's pitchers as being totally a bunch of wimps who can only pitch every five days and then only throw 100 pitches where their arm's going to fall off. Cry, cry, cry. Today's Athletes, not quite what they were back in Rube Foster's day. But he joined the Chicago Union Giants back in 1902. That was one of the best teams in the country, without a doubt. White or black, one of the best teams in the country, one of the most talented teams. And it brought fans together into the stands, both white and black, to watch 
side by side. So this is going back to 1902, which I think is interesting to point out with everything still going on today that, sure, I mean, there were issues back in 1902 and later, but there was also a lot of things going right where people could put aside whatever issues they thought they may have had to go and take in a ball game because people want to see the best. I mean, I know I do. And I believe everybody listening to this would feel the same way. If you're going to watch a sport, whatever that may be, I want to watch the best possible players, no matter what they look like. I don't really care about the color of their skin. I don't even care about their gender. Whoever is best at that sport, I want to see compete. And Mr. Foster got the nickname Rube allegedly around this time after competing in an exhibition game against the Philadelphia Athletics and their ace pitcher, Rube Waddell, and he beat him. So that's he was then dubbed Rube because Rube Waddell was one of the best pitchers of the day, white guy, and they had an exhibition game and Andrew Foster beat Rube Waddell and then was given that as a nickname. John McGraw, the manager of the athletics, was so impressed with the way Rube pitched that he ended up uh, asking him to help one of his pitchers, Christy Mathewson, on how to throw the screwball. But I mean, again, things were segregated back then, so Rube had to be snuck in, and this was all done at a very hush-hush thing, but the screwball back then was still called the fadeaway. But Rube taught the pitch to Christy Mathewson, and Mathewson rode that from being an average pitcher into a consistent 30-game winner and into a Hall of Famer. And that's also a story that's not much told that he learned the pitch that brought him to the Hall of Fame from Rube Foster, who had to be snuck in because, you know, we can't have a black guy teaching a white guy how to do anything. So Rube was a very talented player. There's no doubt about it. He was a very intimidating pitcher, but he was also a great baseball mind, which you started seeing once he was named as player manager of the Leland Giants. His first season with them, they compiled a record of 110 and 10. I mean, that's really making the other side the opponents look bad. I mean, that's not equity. No, 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 it is not equity. That is beating the snot out of the other teams. That is competition. That is the beauty of what sports are supposed to be. That season, they actually went a stretch where Rube's Leland Giants won 48 straight games. Unbelievable record, unbelievably talented manager. But of course, I mean, if you're finding your players for things like you can't put down a bunt or if you don't slide, you know, they're going to they're going to work their tails off. And he knew how to get his players to get the best out of themselves because they wanted to keep their money, which is also a very capitalistic thing. I dig it. According to an article on the Razzball website. Quote, Foster's shrewd gamesmanship and acumen were the stuff of legends. He was perhaps the first manager to freeze balls before games, 
as well as drown the infield. On one occasion, the balls were so hard that they wouldn't bounce, and the opposing team's best power hitters couldn't hit it out of the infield. Foster also employed an elaborate set of hand gestications, which seemingly indicated signals. However, the actual cues were smoke rings and puffs emanating out of his corncob pipe. Way to do misdirection. <laughs> that is some fantastic stuff. And if you're a baseball fan, you know the home field advantage is a very real thing. It is one of the areas where you have some leeway on how you're going to treat the field that you're going to be playing on. So here in Chicago, we have a guy that's legendary named Roger Bossard. They call him the sod father that works the field for the White Sox. And, you know, I mean, there were times if you had a team coming in that was really, really fast, well, you might you might put a little extra water on the field. You would do whatever you had to do to give your team the advantage. And Rube Foster obviously knew this early on, freezing the baseballs. That is absolute genius when you ask me. I don't even want to know what that felt like when a bat hit one of those things and then just died because uh, no spring, I guess, when they're frozen solid. But the Leland Giants, they won the black baseball crown in 1909. And then they challenged the Chicago Cubs to a series and the Cubs accepted. And the Cubs did prevail. But each and every game of the series was so close that they were nail biters. And the umpiring was reportedly so bad that even the white fans in the stands were crying foul, calling out that, you know, for the Cubs, if they weren't going to play the game fairly, if they weren't going to make the umpires actually do their jobs and not intentionally give the Cubs the calls, that they should just get off the field. Because it seems from the records that I've read that, uh, if the umpiring was fair, the Cubs would have probably gotten their behinds kicked as well. But after that series, it's probably not a surprise to anybody that no Major League Baseball team would ever again agree to play one of Foster's clubs in an exhibition because they didn't want to be embarrassed by a team that was better. And we're still living in a segregated society. We're still living in a time where that would have been seen as a uh, as a bad thing, I guess, by some people. And it's kind of sad that these guys, including Rube Foster, never got a chance to compete in the major leagues. Finally, just over the last year or so, Major League Baseball has decided to incorporate the statistics that they do have from the Negro Leagues into the major league statistics. Finally. Finally, admitting that the leagues actually had merit and the players that played in them quite often were more talented than the players that were playing in Major League Baseball. There's a bunch of players. You can do your own homework on this because I didn't do this for you, but I know there's a bunch of players that played in the Negro Leagues that once they got to the Major Leagues, we had way way better averages, better ERAs for the pitching side of things, which showed that the overall level of competition 
in the Negro leagues at the time was probably better than you were getting in Major League Baseball. But at this point, Rube Foster is still just a player, but his journey is about to take another step, according to Saber, S-A-B-R. Foster split with Leland and decided to put together his own team for the 1910 season. He signed players away from both the old Leland Giants and the Philadelphia Giants to form the Chicago American Giants. With stars such as John Henry Lloyd, Pete Hill, and Home Run Johnson, Foster considered this to be the greatest baseball talent ever assembled. He managed and pitched for the team and led them to an astounding 128 and 6 record. Then in 1911, he partnered with the Chicago White Sox in order to get to play their games back in the stadium that the White Sox had just abandoned for the brand new Comiskey Park. And uh, there's a lot of stories about that being a questionable decision for the White Sox as the Negro League team was again outdrawing and outplaying them. And that's baseball. Talent will rise to the top. But what really sets Rube Foster apart from anybody else is the fact that he went from being a player to being a manager to being an owner to on February 13th, 1920 at the Kansas City Paseo YMCA starting the Negro National League, eight teams. And it was been said before that there were really no leagues that lasted more than a year. All of the teams that the schedules they had, they were playing was just a very haphazard thing where teams just randomly played other teams. There were no divisions. There was no long set schedule with everybody involved. And this was the first time that the Negro Leagues were really under an umbrella that brought everything together. And Rube Foster not only was the guy that started this, he often helped out other teams that were unable to make their payroll by paying them out of his own pocket because his team, the Chicago American Giants, as well as the Kansas City Monarchs, they were actually more profitable than a lot of the Major League Baseball teams. So it really helped to spark black baseball all throughout the country in the South and in the East. And the groundwork that Rube Foster did led to the success of the Negro Leagues. The Negro National League teams played in the Midwest and in the South from 1920 until 1931. During that time, Foster served as their president, financier, negotiator, booking agent, and the de facto commissioner. It is really inconceivable that the league would have even existed without Rube Foster. And this was proven by the fact that the league eventually disbanded shortly after his death, a death which came a few years after an incident that happened towards the end of 1925, where Mr. Foster was nearly killed by a gas leak in a rooming house that he was staying in. The event took a serious toll on his well-being, and the result of the carbon monoxide poisoning appeared to have caused serious brain damage. He never recovered, 
His behavior became erratic and he became uncontrollable at times. He went into dementia and then was prone to lapses of memory and violent outbursts. Really a tragedy for a guy who had just such a great understanding of baseball, a magnificent vision, one of the best baseball minds ever. Dementia is a horrible thing whenever it takes that life away from somebody. And in this case, no different. He was institutionalized after he was deemed insane, and he spent the last few years of his life in the Kankakee Asylum. Shortly after his death, as I said, the league disbanded because the leadership of Rube Foster was gone. His vision was a simple one. He wanted to put teams on the field that would have to be accepted as equals because of the way they played, because of their performance. Again, no equity. We weren't forcing anybody to win. It wasn't like, oh, wait, you haven't won enough, so we're going to give you a leg up. No. He wanted his teams to stand on their own two feet and to succeed at the game, and he more than accomplished that. Unfortunately, Major League Baseball at the time was still not ready to integrate the teams. And it's really a sad thing because at the time, as I said, a lot of these teams in the Negro Leagues could have competed quite well with the Major League teams. And while integration finally came, it was only to start at the player level where the Negro Leagues were run, the teams were run by blacks, the players were black, the coaching staffs were black, the doctors were everything. They were all run, and it would have been nice for the people in all of those other positions not to be left behind, but that unfortunately was not to be. Rube Foster was elected into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in 1981. He's, of course, in the Negro Leagues Baseball Hall of Fame, which I still think is a better Hall of Fame than the one in Cooperstown. There has been talk that the greats, Minnie Minoso and Dick Allen, may finally get a nod into the Cooperstown Hall of Fame this year. And for though, I mean, it would be nice, but a little too little, a little too late. The Cooperstown Hall of Fame, you see what's going on with guys like uh, Kurt Schilling. Still way too politicized. If you want to back a Hall of Fame that actually has integrity, it is the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame in Kansas City, Missouri. You should check them out. And if you have an Amazon account, as I do, although I spend way too much money with Amazon because they're doing some really crazy stuff. But if you're buying stuff from Amazon anyway, go to smile.amazon.com and choose the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, as the organization getting a percentage of every one of your sales. It is a worthy thing to support. No question about it. Now, without Rube Foster, I don't know if the baseball world ever gets to have a Satchel Page or a Josh Gibson or a Jackie Robinson. Author Robert Peterson said this of Rube Foster, 
If the talents of Christy Mathewson, John McGraw, Ban Johnson, and Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis were combined in a single body, and that body were enveloped in a black skin, the result would have been named Andrew Rube Foster. Frank Chance of Chicago Cubs fame said of Foster, quote, he is the most finished product I've ever seen in the pitcher's box. I never knew they called it a pitcher's box. It's a mound now. But that is a legendary white player, Frank Chance, saying that Rube Foster, one of the best pitchers he'd ever seen. And Honus Wagner, another legend of baseball, suggested Foster was, quote, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. The guy's legend should be known by anybody that follows baseball. And unfortunately, it's a name. I followed baseball for a long time, and I believe I've heard the name now and then, but I didn't know the full story behind Rube Foster. And that's why I thought it was something that was worthy of bringing to you today. Even if you don't like baseball, even if you don't follow sports. And I mean, in today's society, I can understand that. Because sports has gotten a little bit crazy. But this is the story of a guy who was able to make a huge mark way back when that made things a lot better for those players today. Definitely helped integrate. It's an amazing thing to hear those stories that back in those times where racial tensions were so high that people of all different skin colors showed up to watch the teams sit side by side and cheer together. I mean, it would be nice if we could say all of those problems are behind us here close to 100 years later. But for some reason, people still like to focus on differences rather than similarities. But I digress. We're not going to solve all of the world's problems in one short podcast, but we can dream, can't we? Here on the Random Thoughts podcast, we do use the value for value model that we learned from Adam Curry and John C. Dvorak over on the No Agenda podcast. If you're not listening to No Agenda, you should check it out, noagendashow.com. But the value for value model is simple. That means we put out the shows. We don't charge anything. And if you got any value out of listening to the show, it's up to you to get some value back to us in any way you'd like to do so. One of those ways is through physical donations, monetary donations, and you can do that at random thoughts, R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com, where there is a donate button. You can do a one-time donation or a monthly donation through PayPal. You can use the QR code or the Bitcoin address to do the Bitcoin thing, or you can use the snail mail address. Any of those are fine. And we do have an executive producer today coming in with five bucks all the way from the Netherlands, Daniel Walraven. And we greatly appreciate the support, Daniel. And as we started out talking about Rush Limbaugh having an audience, it is still a crazy thing to me. It is a very humbling experience when I hear from people all over the globe that are listening to the show. And it's wild because, I mean, when you used to start out in radio, You'd start out in a small town. Nobody could hear you outside of that small town. So you maybe only had a radio station that could go out 10, 20, 100 miles, maybe at the longer end. But that's all you had. That was your audience. Anybody within that particular physical range 
the internet has changed all of that. I know it's just a series of tubes, but it allows things I say into this microphone here on my desk just outside of Chicago to go to all corners of the globe. And it is really a cool thing. And we appreciate everybody that listens to this show. We know you have plenty of other things you could be doing, plenty other things that you could be having as your entertainment source. As Rush Limbaugh said, all talk radio, all this stuff, it's all about being entertained. So we do hope we've entertained you. We thank you for your time. We thank you for listening. And of course, we thank everybody, including Daniel Walraven, who came in with a donation today for supporting the show to help us keep the lights on, the microphones humming, and all of that other stuff. But we will be back again next week for another exciting edition of the Random Thoughts Podcast. But until then, I am Darren O'Neill with talent on loan from God. Thanks for listening. 